Welcome to Back Talk. Today, our guests are Rav Aurora, a freelance opinion writer for the New York Post, Lauren Whitney, a mother and black child activist, and Dr. Nakia Hamlet, a psychology professor and child psychologist whose research focuses on African-American mental health and race-based traumatic stress. This is Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine, the most listened to podcast for parents by parents. We are discussing Ray Aurora's New York Post article that ran on January 2nd titled Teaching White Fragility is Bad for Kids of Color. Is teaching white fragility really bad for kids of color? Rav, can you please tell us about your story and your little sister and brother who you wrote about in the article? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I find that when you, I'll, I'll just speak in, in general terms, maybe might be easiest. Um, I think that when you start teaching um, just anybody um, that, that there are, that there are just inherent differences between white people and black people and people of color when you do that, it creates division, and and it's it's the exact opposite of what we learn. For example, from from somebody like MLK, like we want to reach a place where race becomes less and less significant, right? I want my brother and sister to to be in an environment where they're learning that they that they are equal to their their white classmates and their black classmates and their Chinese classmates. I don't want them to think that they are just fundamentally different. And unfortunately, both the, the actual racist, right, somebody who discriminates based on race, and, and I talked about um, the experience my, my sister had with uh, racism um, with a young boy in her class. Um, thankfully, it all worked out at the end, and it was resolved, which, which I'm really um, happy about. But, uh, but she, was, um, she was bullied for her skin color, and that we recognize is, is racist. Um, but then on the other side, we have this, this new wave of anti-racism um, encapsulated by, by Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, which, which teaches um, a similar concept, but in a, with, with different intentions. So, you know, DiAngelo's intentions are not to be racist. And many people who identify with the, the new anti-racist BLM movement aren't, aren't obviously racist, but... But some of the some of the elements in the anti-racist movement uh, encourage um, racial stratification and differences um, between groups, which I think is is really um, unhelpful. And and this goes back to to what I was saying earlier in that um, I, I want I don't want um, my siblings to be in an environment where. Um, where racial differences are highlighted and they're, they're socialized to think that black people are just uh, in, a, in a society where they are just thought of as less and they're, you know, inferior because of systems of oppression and, and people of color like us, you know, us Indian immigrants are, you know, living in a white supremacist society. So, you know, we have less and white people are just inherently privileged, right? That kind of thing, I think, just is really destructive and it's, it's not helpful. It, it makes young people feel helpless, that they are doomed. And that's just not a mentality that I want. I want to be responsible for myself. And I want the same for, for white people, for black people, for all people. And, and racism exists. And that's a problem. 
but until we see each other as individuals, we can't um, collectively uh, fight against injustice and racism. And I appreciate that. Um, I do want you to tell the story about what, what your brother, because that is kind of leading this whole talk. Um, and so if you can go into a little bit about why you even wrote that article based on your brother's experience, because I, I want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So he he was uh, in in a classroom, and and thankfully this didn't last for for too long, I suppose. But there was this one um, encounter where he was in the class, and uh, the teacher decided to uh, divide the the class up in groups and and talk about the concept of white fragility. Um, and she didn't give too much instruction, um, and and that was just kind of it. And, and in general, throughout the class, they were learning about. Um, about police violence, about police brutality, and and I thought that uh, that the numbers being presented were, were really skewed and not in line with with the actual data. Um, but, but apart from from that, um, yeah. So they were going through white fragility very briefly, and just you know, my brother was describing just being really uncomfortable with that feeling that that there is something about you know white fragility about in general white people being different than him. Like he always thought of of his of his classmates as equal to him and, and he's obviously a person of color you know we're indian immigrants here living in canada and he always thought that you know white people were, were equal to him and, and same with indigenous people and black people and, and obviously there are socioeconomic differences and, and no one is really you know equal so to speak but but he always treated his his white classmates as his equal as um, as he did with his his other um, classmates of different backgrounds, but this was really highlighting differences. Like, oh, okay, my classmates here are are white, and I'm a person of color, and he is black. He is from I think there was a student from from the Middle East, and then these differences just became just spotlighted, and it just started creating this kind of uh, implicit division, which which normally we would fight against, but it was being perversely reinforced. Okay. Well, before I start, I just want to give our listeners a, a, an idea about my background because I described all of your backgrounds. But um, I have a degree in early childhood education. I've been a teacher from preschool, high school, and a professor at a prestigious university. I've owned a daycare center, run million-dollar childcare programs. But you might be surprised, Raf, that I, for the most part, agree with you, right? I think that teaching white fragility in schools is not appropriate. It's not. Because teachers have repeatedly gotten sensitive racial subjects, like in your case with your brother and, and things like teaching slavery, especially with teaching slavery, horribly wrong. They just don't do it. Well, um, there was a Bronx teacher, you guys might have heard this, that had her black students lie on the floor and she walked on their backs to show them what slavery felt like. You can look all of these up. In a private school in New York, another teacher held a mock slave auction separating her white students from her black students that had the white children bid on the black children. And there's many more examples like this. They just get it wrong from whatever perspective they're coming from. Um, I, you know, I want to make a few points, and I'm going to let you guys also chime in, uh, Lauren and Dr. Hamlet. Um, I believe racial subjects should be taught by the child's parents, and only when it needs to come up. But I do believe that you start by building resilience from the time they are toddlers to reinforce how beautiful every part of them is from their hair to their skin color, not necessarily to separate them, but to make them ready 
for whatever comes at them later on. And you remind them through, with these things through books and role models that look like them and show them that people like them can do, are, are doing amazing things, right? And that way, when they encounter someone pointing out their differences, they already know that no matter what the other person says, that they're wrong. And that's, that's a you problem, not a, not a them problem. You know, it's a you problem, the guy over there. Um, they know to say at an older age, by the time they're in elementary school, that I'm proud of the skin I'm in. So I don't know, understand why you're making fun of it. Uh, ignoring aspects of your child's differences in order to assimilate, though, does not protect them when the time comes and they will feel like an outcast or that they're harassed for being different. Now, the teacher that separated your, those, the children out in your brother's classroom was totally wrong for that. And I totally agree about that. But Lauren, can you address this from your experience as a mother? You made a powerful video, too. I want to get back to that. But I want you to address this from your experiences as a mother. Yeah. You know, I think it's important uh, that I first state uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, um, so in the South, but predominantly white suburb. And for much of my life, I was always one of the only black kids in a classroom. And so much of my experience being in the classroom and education around who I was and who I am, like you said, was always skewed. And the way it was taught, I was always uncomfortable and I was always singled out. Um but what my parents did is reinforced in the home who I am um, and also really did a lot of, we had a lot of conversations about difference uh, because that could not be ignored. And that's something that even at a young age, I felt and I knew and, and, and I could feel all eyes on me. But being a mom, my son is four years old and to say like children are colorblind, I don't believe that's true. I think children uh, are innocent and they see everyone that they interact with just as like another person, another human. Um, and we teach them they're different or you're different or they're good or you're not good, right? That's what we teach. Um, but my son, even being four years old, we, since he was a baby, I have read books that have reinforced the beauty of his skin that have reinforced the beauty of who he is and how awesome he is. And even, and I talk about even how very much there will be times, I mean, he's four and was in preschool um, pre pandemic, he was going to school and I had to sit in that school that was majority white students to make sure that my son was getting equal attention and that he was being taught the same way every other person was. And this was a school that uh, was a good penny to go to. And so I had to make sure of that. But I also learned that I couldn't sit in the background and just trust and believe that he was going to be given the same kind of attention. Um, and that's just ingrained in knowing as a black woman, as a black mother, that those are things you have to do. Um and, and I think I would add to that, you know, over this last year, it's not that all of a sudden this big anti-racist movement has uh, just, you know, come up. I think all of I think what's happened in this past year, people's ears are now attuned to say, oh, maybe we should make a change. Maybe there is a problem. And that video that I made, ask yourself. 
that embodies the questions that many black mothers, my mother, my grandmothers, my great great grandmothers, and so on and so on down the line have always had to ask themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, video just a bit and just uh, people, if you, you can get her website, I'll put that information in, in the uh, description so you can see the video that she created, which is very powerful. Can you talk about that just a little bit, what you did? Yeah, so it was uh, right after the murder of George Floyd and um, I was just overwhelmed by being inundated with video after video um, month after month of our black men being killed by police brutality um, and also just hatred towards our black men. And I was so frustrated. I said, what is it and when is it that our black men become a threat to society, that they become a threat to white men, white individuals, or anyone who does not look like them? And so I made a video utilizing people that I know, uh, friends, family, and I just went through and, and I, I asked, like, is it when they were born? Is it education? Is it when they, um, you know, is it when you want your jail cells fi filled? Is it, is it when, when I don't look like you or when white women become afraid? I asked the questions that so many people, I think, might have in their heads, but we often pass over and we just don't articulate it or say it, but the truth is so many people think it. And so I didn't know it would reach out in the way that it did. Uh, I'm thankful that it did. And I, I pray if anything that people be, really do begin to ask themselves the question, how do I embody specifically uh, white people? How are you, or I, I would like to say white bodied people, how do you embody racism and where does that maybe live in you or how do you body whites and body white supremacy and are you willing to are you willing to give that up are you willing to do the work so that we can begin to dismantle racism and the systemic structure of it um and when we get into further conversation that's one thing i would i would really love to talk further about uh, Rav living here in the United States, it really is a a, a systemic structure uh, of of racism, and I, I can understand where the teachers are coming from and want or maybe wanting to teach, but I do agree in in some ways maybe that isn't something that should be taught in the classroom. Okay, Rob, do you want to respond to that at all, or um, there's a lot there? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if you want to go down down this train, but I, I did disagree with, with the characterization of police violence, but I don't know if you want to, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Well, that's not on this show. We, that's a whole other tangent okay. that we can get okay. into, but sure. um, as far as, let me ask you, you said that, um, you know, that made your siblings feel uh, as if they were being, um, you know, separated from the rest of their friends and, and by the sense of their skin, but were they traumatized by this in any way? I know they talked to you, um, according to your article, and asked you some questions, but how do you feel they were maybe traumatized by this a bit? Uh, no, no, no. They weren't traumatized uh, okay. because uh, with my brother, it was just one time when this happened um, where they were put in, in groups, random groups, and they were talking about white fragility. It was just discomfort. And uh, mm -hmm. and I think it's um, it's kind of the 
the opposite problem of what you were talking about um, with regards to like separating kids um, by race and there's there's just explicitly kind of racist training uh, teaching seemingly Um, this was what my brother experienced was explicitly anti-racist school teaching it was teaching young kids that that black people are routinely killed by the police and and other things which um, which I'll, I'll just briefly say that, uh, that that many white people are killed by police in, in very similar circumstances. But those videos never go viral. Dylan Noble, t- uh, Tony Timpa, Daniel Shaver, just, just a handful of, of white people that were killed by officers in very brutal circumstances. But those names never go viral because they were white. And so we have this misperception about police brutality, specifically towards black people, when the reality is is not not the case at all. Okay, we won't go too far into that. I'm just going to say when you're looking at um, uh, percentage wise uh, with a small group, a minority group, and it's a large percentage in that majority group that are being affected by police brutality and it's been going on for decades and you have a majority and their percentage rates will be lower because they are the majority. So if you take the smaller group and their percentage rates are even close to, you know, the majority or, or higher or, you know, in this case, it's it's not necessarily higher because they're the majority, but if the percentage rate is higher for the African-American community as far as the the police brutality, then they will definitely um, have a problem. And that's why it's highlighted more, because eventually, you know, we're going to have an extinction of men if we keep going down this route. And it seems to be targeted specifically a lot of times, not all the time, but for our men and our boys, they seem to be having it the most. And yes, white people are targeted by police. I've seen it. I've seen the videos. I, I know the percentage uh, for them because of the, their majority should be higher. But for a minority, it definitely should not be higher or nowhere near as high as it is right now. So I'm just going to say that about that because we can go into um, debates about that forever. And we, we have and I have online. But I just want to say um, I'm going to give Dr. Hamlet a chance to address some of these topics that we've talked about uh, from her point of view so she can get a chance to speak. So Dr. Hamlet, would you like to chime in? Sure. You know, and I really appreciate this conversation. Um, Lauren, I really, what you said really resonated with me and I can't wait to watch that video. I mean, I think generally to the last point that was made, I mean, I think it is without question that African-American people and other people of color are disproportionately represented among those who Um, suffer from police violence, discrimination, educational marginalization, um, you know, being in jail, etc. So I almost feel like that's sort of beyond debate at this point, because there is so much data to that. But I would also speak to the colorblind issue. And I think that is sort of a historic perspective that has been held that it's better to not have discussions about race, and we're all equal. But I actually see that now as what I would call the new dangerousness. Because at this point, if we don't acknowledge difference, and start to explore difference and appreciate difference and be able to discuss difference openly, then we're essentially ignoring all of the things we see on the news every day. So the George Floyd cases over and over, what just happened at the Capitol. I don't think we have the luxury at this point of just leaving it at, aren't we all equal? Because it's clear that's not the case. And it's also clear sort of, and this was mentioned in your article, Rav, the idea that it was sort of addressed as if 
America is a caste system. And I don't know if you, you guys have read the newest book by Isabel Wilkerson um, called Caste, which literally articulates in a really beautiful way the fact that America is an example of a caste system. And so if we don't acknowledge that there is a racial hierarchy that we are all a part of, although we may achieve success in education, then, then we are, again, that's the new dangerousness and not having a conversation about what is the reality of America, our history to this point, as recently as last week. Okay. Um, let me just talk about geography a little bit, because um, one issue is that, um, Rob, you uh, are speaking to people of color, but for black people in the United States, we have a different experience. And I hate to make it this simple to compare it to like cats and things like that. But I always tell people like if you um, we're all that you have a bunch of cats, they're all cats. Right. But then each cat have each cat breed will have their own experience, depending on how desired they are or um, where they are. Uh, black cats have a horrible, horrible um, connotation with them. Right. So they're considered evil black. Same thing with dogs, by the way. They have something called actually that exists called black dog syndrome. So each has a different experience and nothing's wrong with those experiences. Those experiences, depending on where you live, can um, can, you know, guide your life. If I you know, live in the South, you're going to have a different experience of southern United States versus western United States versus eastern. You're going to see more racism that's blatant in the South. You're not going to see it as much. It's going to be a little bit more covert in the northeast states but it's there it still is there and you can find it my mom has a saying the longer you live the more you experience right so i didn't experience racism until i was in my 20s because i left my little um area which was all black at the time west philadelphia moved to the northeast of philadelphia and that was the first time that when i recognized it it hit me like a ton of bricks like oh my god i'm being discriminated against because of who i am and it hurts it really does hurt now, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, I know you are from Canada, specifically the Vancouver area. I love Vancouver, by the way. I go there. I spend a lot of time, months there. Um, I know a lot about it. But let me tell you this. Uh, I know they have a lot of racism there against the Chinese, which I had never seen before. Because in the United States, they're on the higher end of the hierarchy of race is what I was told by white people. <laughs> I've been actually told that there's a hierarchy, a chart of who you can marry because I married into a white family. And that's what they told my husband. Told me, oh, Asians, they're okay. You know, um, you know, even South Asians, they're great. They're OK. They're up there. Right. But um, when you get to Latinos and black people, well, that's what they told my husband when he was going to marry me. All right. <laughs> so but Vancouver, let's get back to that. Um, it was the first time I went anywhere and I've traveled a lot. But where I really went a place, I stayed some time and felt really free. And what I mean by that is that I wasn't looked at like, what are you doing here? Or grimaced at, like, what are you doing here? Um, and I've, I've gotten disgusted faces, depending on where I've, I've lived and where I've been. But it was freedom. And I really felt like this is what it's supposed to feel like. And I, I have not felt that way here in, in the United States, everywhere I go. Um, my mother visited later, and she felt the same thing. And I, I hadn't even talked to her about it. And she said, wow, people really don't look at you like, what are you doing here? And I said, exactly. And I like it here because that. Not to say there's no racism there, because I did experience two people of all the times I've been there that didn't like that I was living next to them, okay, and, and Kitsilano. So they were very upset about that. Um, but I'm wondering is if, the, you know, like I said, experiences can be different from depending on where you are, um, when I was there, also just brought back a memory, I had 
people I normally would typecast because we all have biases, right? So this big motorcycle dude stopped me and asked me about my little dog. And it blew my mind because that's not my experience in the United States. If I'm stopped by a big motorcycle dude, I'm kind of like, what, what do you want? You know, I'm kind of a little nervous about it because my experience has been that they have not been here for me <laughs> in the United States. So it blew my mind for, and I, it really made me feel welcome in Vancouver. So Vancouver was different. And I'm thinking your experience, experience there is likely very different from if you and your siblings were being raised in the United States. So you're coming from a narrow reference point of your microcosm of experiences, which isn't the majority and, and your pen has power. So that's where I had a problem with the article because I thought maybe it sounds like you're speaking for all black people or all people of color everywhere and their experiences. And then when you wrote that, I knew that it would, it would feel, feel great to the uh, white people who want to say white fragility does not exist, right? So they would, they'll accept this and take it and run with it. And especially you being a person of color, like, oh, he said it though. He said it though. And so that's where I really had an issue with it. I didn't have an issue with the fact that you said, you know, this happened and, and, and I understood teachers should not be teaching that. But what is your response to that, Rob? Um, no, I, I think we actually agree, but maybe you didn't understand exactly what I was trying to get at in the article. Um, so, well, first of all, um, growing up, I mentioned this in, in a different piece of mind that I grew up uh, in a majority white class in a majority white area, majority white classrooms in elementary school and middle school. And uh, I experienced a lot of racism then. And I, I was constantly bullied like like almost every week. And I also had um, a turban because I'm of Sikh background. And so that it was racism plus xenophobia and, you know, I guess religious persecution. So it, it was just, in many cases, it was really, really difficult being a young brown kid with a turban in, in a white class and just constantly being picked on for being different, you know, you know, being Indian and looking a certain way, having a certain kind of, uh, you know, food and culture, that type of thing. So, so I fully recognize just how pervasive racism is. Um, but, but I, I don't, I don't claim to speak for people of color or black people or even Indian people. I, I only speak for myself, my family, and, and I think that that's, that's a point that I, I constantly encourage for, for black people not to speak, for, for a black person not to speak for black people or for me to speak for Indian people because there is so much diversity of opinion. Um, and I'll read you a quote here that I was looking at last night from um, Professor John McWhorter. I don't know if you're familiar. <laughs> Are you guys? Yes. Yeah. Okay, uh, linguistics professor at Columbia. Uh, and he had a great article on, on white fragility in uh, the Atlantic, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and he wrote, um, quote, in my life, racism has affected me now and then at the margins in very occasional social ways, but has had no effect on my access to societal resources. If anything, it has made me more available. It has made them more available to me than they would have been otherwise. And, uh, and there are different polls that, that look at this, the amount of racism that black people experience. And it's, it's not uniform. It's not every black person is experiencing lots of racism. Some people are, and I'm sure you guys have had experiences, as you, as you say. But, but there's one poll, for example, this was a Pew poll a few years back, and it found that 60% of black people without college degrees say their race hasn't affected their chances of success. And many black conservatives would say that. Many people that I've spoken to have said that they, that they haven't experienced much racism. And so it, it depends on the situation, right? Like in some cases, 
you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of black friends and, and I've experienced more racism than they have. And, I, and I'm South Asian. And so I think it matters on the situation, right? It, you can't just speak for, for all black people or for all Indian people or for, for all white people being privileged. You know, there are lots of white people that have had that have just horrible lives compared to, to what I have. So it depends on the context and it depends on the person. So we shouldn't treat, you know, one group as a, as a monolithic culture. Can okay, I speak to I that for a second? Say something. I know, just let me say that. I, I think we agree more than we don't agree. Um, but like I said, you know, you, um, I think it definitely has to do with where you are, who you are, how you're raised. I can tell you, I have, um, you know, for that, those polls like Pew, they don't dig deep enough, okay? Because once you dig deeper, you find out why these situations are so. Like I mentioned earlier, I had never experienced racism. I was one of those people, if you would have asked me that before, you know, in my early 20s, I would have said, oh, no, I've never experienced it. But do you know why I never experienced this? Because I never really went outside of my area, my culture. You know, especially people that aren't college educated, a lot of that demographic, they don't travel the world. They don't get to experience thing. Again, my mother's saying, live long enough and you'll experience so much. So that the problem with a lot of those polls but go ahead i'm going to let uh dr hamlet go first yeah i mean i you know i appreciate your perspective rab and i think you speak to the complexity of humans you know and the idea that we are all different you know we diversity is key to our our evolution right and our adaptation and our survival so diversity is great even diversity of ideas um i would say though i think you have both spoken to jr and rab spoken to race-based traumatic stress, right? You both talked about experiences of being othered and feeling, you know, uncomfortable, maybe feeling that you're in danger, right? And the distinctions of feeling that in America versus other places. And so I, I, I just, I can't speak for other black people and other brown people, but if we all have sort of this narrative of having at some point either heard, right, of someone being discriminated against who looked like us, right, as a vicarious trauma or personally experienced something where something directly happened to us. I mean, in any case, you sort of you sort of get an idea about the narrative of America. And so I think it might just be managed differently. You know, Professor McWhorter, I mean, he's obviously a brilliant man. And so I respect his opinion different than my own. But that's how he has has metabolized his experience of being a black person in America, right? Just like you metabolize your experience as an Indian man in America. And so I think it it just speaks to the point of why we have to have these conversations about diversity as opposed to we're all just equal. Can't we just all get along? Right. And I agree. These conversations are necessary to end uh, racism because there was so uh, such a long period of time where we did not talk about it and we were, it was taboo to talk about it, right? So th- that's the one good thing about D'Angelo's book is that she's making people talk about it. Whether you agree with her or not, she, people are talking about it. Uh, and, you know, if you look at something, some other types of abuse, and let's just, let me go back a little bit. So racism is, is discrimination with oppression. And we have to make sure we make that clear. It's not just bias. It's, it's, it's racism means you have the power to oppress. And I'm not talking about individually. I'm talking about majority. If you belong to that majority and you are being racist, you have the power, depending on where you are, who you are, what positions you hold, to then oppress another 
group of people by your racism. So that's what how we define racism. Um, and it's how it was defined in the past. And it seems to be changing, I noticed, as we go. But <laughs> I wanted to just make that clear. But yes, as, exactly. And I, I do agree that we need to talk about it. It's just like um, if you don't talk about another type of abuse, like say, God forbid, um, domestic abuse, and not to, to belittle any of these things, but I believe that racism is the epitome of bullying as well. But far as um, abuse, physical abuse, uh, domestic abuse, no one says, oh, don't talk about it and it'll go away because it won't. And we know that won't go away. So why are we saying about racism? And I've heard people say that as recently as last week to me, shut up about it. And if you don't want it, if you don't want it to happen, shut up about it. We have to talk about it. And what we're doing here, I think, is, is helping to get rid of it. Even though we know we, we, we know we're different. Like if you ask any of these women here, we know we're different. We live in the United States. We're reminded of it on a regular basis, right? So, um, but it's okay because we've grown up knowing this and then we're okay about it. It doesn't hurt my self-esteem. I like being different and it's okay. And that's what people don't understand. I like being different. You know, I like, I like my skin color. If I was white, I would want the same, same skin color. I like it. It's fine. I don't see anything wrong with it. So that's what a lot of people out here don't understand. They think we want to be exactly the same as white people. We don't. There's diversity in nature for a reason. And I like who I am. So I don't need to be like them. It's not equality that I'm so much striving for, except I'm more striving for equity, you know, and I'm working for it. But I want the same chances and opportunities. Not saying they're not out there, but it's hard to find. And you'll find people like me and other people who have been working hard all their lives, breaking their backs, working hard. And because somebody, and we don't have anyone to open that door, we don't have the connections, we don't have a network, even though we're networking our butt off, we, everyone has someone who opened that door for them. And so that's not happening for everyone. And I realized this, that something was wrong. I lived in a billionaire neighborhood by chance one time, right, for about a year. And I was driving my bike, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, there's no one here that looks like me. No one. Why is that? Because if we're 30% of the society, shouldn't we have more billionaires in the black community? Not because they're not working hard. You can't tell me because I know people working two or three jobs. I know black women have the, um, uh, are the most educated women in the United States right now with college degrees. And I'm like, why? Why is that? You know something is inherently wrong if there's no one here that looks like me. How come black people don't own so much beachfront property? Well, we can go into redlining and all of that, <laughs> which is very important. But there's a reason for that. And those are the things that have kept people back in the United States specifically. So anyway, Lauren, I wanted to give you a chance to speak. Go ahead. Yeah, so... <clears throat> I wanted to first um, say, Rob, I really do appreciate uh, you sharing your perspective and um, also writing this article. Um, I think one thing that's really important that we name here is, yes, we were talking about like the systemic structure of racism and it being ingrained into the fabric of specifically this country, which I believe in many ways is, is uh, very different. Um, even as I just heard you, uh, you say, JR, your experience being um, in Canada. Uh, but when we talk about race, race being a construct that actually is meant to further divide us as a people. And so when you were talking, Robin, you were talking about how uh, what, the, what, what um, the professor said and saying that he did have access to opportunity, um, 
you're right, JR. Many of us don't leave out of our communities. And then to have access to opportunity means that we have to capitalize on our our proximity to whiteness. That means we have to move closer into white spaces, which often, I just want to name Rob, is very painful for us because we're asked to put so much of ourselves on the line. We're asked to quiet parts of who we are. There's three black women right now here talking. At some point, we've all been asked to change our hair. Oh, absolutely. We've asked, this is the hair that's accepted for corporate America. Yeah, yes, right. Yes. We've asked to, make, to tone down the way that we speak. Even now, I'm sitting here questioning. I'm like, I'm, I'm a very passionate person. And I'm like, am I, do I sound aggressive right now? Because I'm not trying to sound aggressive. I'm just passionate. So I'm going to go a little higher in my pitch so that I sound a little bit more acceptable. And, I, and to all those who are listening, that I'm not aggressive. I can get aggressive. But I'm not. I'm just passionate about what I'm speaking on. And, and we, we, are, we constantly have to compromise ourselves to be able to take a step forward, to be able to get to, get to the next level, to be, to be in a billionaire neighborhood. Well, what, what is it that we have to put on the line of ourselves? Exactly. Rob, do you want to uh, respond to her at all? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the... Experiences you're talking about, I'm sure they're, they're, they sound um, genuine, and and it's good to to learn about these experiences that you've went through, and and they're important to share. And and I share my experiences with racism in my work um, as well. So so yeah, so yeah, I think we should. I think we're all united on fighting against uh, discrimination and racism. Um, but again, I think I would go back to an earlier point about not all black people experiencing this one thing, not all Indian people experiencing this one thing. Like I, I've spoken to, to many black people who, well, maybe not many, but multiple black people, let's just say like, so we have you guys, three black women here. And then you're saying that you've experienced this thing, which I'm sure is real and genuine and that's horrible. And, and I agree with you on that, but I, you know, I've spoken to, to multiple other black people, multiple other Indian people, who haven't experienced what I've experienced, who have experienced less discrimination, you know, minimal discrimination. So, so I think it matters from, from person to person. I don't think we can cast wide um, dispersions about how one group experiences things. Um, even though, you know, I, I could say that there are, I'm sure there are some things that, that being, um, there are some things that, that black people disproportionately face. You could say that, um, I guess I just, you know, hearing from from a diverse range of, of people, um, I always try to listen to to people across the political spectrum and conservatives, liberals, progressives. And I, I just hear this diverse range of voices. And, and some people say, you know, some black people and other people of color say they've experienced no racism and others say they've experienced lots. So so I guess it's, it's a diverse range and it matters where you live, where you are, uh, what kind of family you grew up in, et cetera. It, it matters from from person to person, I guess. It does, but I'm gonna just say, I did not pick these ladies because I knew for sure they have experienced discrimination okay, or yeah. oppression or racism. So right. they know that, you know, it's, but it's so common here in the United States right. that um, we share a lot of the same experiences. So that's why even as a magazine, we can speak to the masses mm -hmm. because so many people can relate to it because it's an experience. And I do believe that when if people just start listening, see that's one of the problems with racism is that no one sits down to have these talks like with police brutality. We march, we march. When are they going to invite black people to the table so we can discuss what needs to change? 
no one's listening and that keeps it going. It keeps it going. And so, um, when I believe it, when the masses are all yelling the same thing, someone needs to listen. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not just with race. That's with almost anything. If everyone, you hear big voices, a lot of people saying, I had this experience. Yes, me too. Hey, hi, over here. We need to listen. And that's where I think we're falling apart is because people don't want to hear it. They want us to shut up. No one wants to listen. I think that's the baseline. If you can just start getting people to listen, then we can start making progress. Go ahead, Lauren. I, I was going to say to your point, JR, um, when we're talking, going back to actually to the article, and when we're talking about being more open and being more intentional about having conversations about racism, I do think that, I do think white fragility has to be taught. And, you know, it might, school may not be the place unless that is an open conversation with parents saying, I am okay with this conversation happening within my child's classroom. But I do think it is a conversation that has to be ongoing and, and, and has to be taught to these white parents to have with their children. You know, I often talk about the talk. And when I say that, I know both of you ladies know exactly what I'm talking about, the talk. You know, I don't have to even go any further. And that is that conversation that we know our brothers are going to have from our fathers or from our mothers or the conversation that our parents are going to have with us about the color of our skin, being encountered by police, when you drive a car, what you do. I mean, all of those things, right? And so I think we as people of color, specifically here in the United States, and let me say black people, we have done so much of the holding for over 400 years. We have coddled everybody. And let's, let's, let's say physically coddled. We coddled babies. We fed babies that were not the color of our skin, that were white babies that b- belonged to our slave owners. We carried them on our backs. We cared for them. And we are still expected to do that today with their emotions. And so I get really passionate about this conversation that Robin D'Angelo has brought to the table of white fragility because yes, it is a thing. And yes, it also contributes to continuing to hold up anti-black racism. If white people are not able to see that we can't have the conversations because it once again comes back to us protecting them and them emotionally. Right. And I I do agree that a lot of times when we have conversations with white people about race, that they want to shut us down. That's why I got the shut up about it and it'll go away last week. Um, and that's where, but as far as teaching children, I do still believe that's something that our, you know, parents need to tell our own children of, of people of color, black people, that it exists. But not, I think only when it, they have an experience with it, whether it's online and they see a video, I don't think that it necessarily has to come up. But I do believe that white parents do need to teach their children tolerance because you mentioned uh, Martin Luther King uh, in your your article and people like to whitewash what he's about and what Mm -hmm. he says, but he was also about teaching tolerance, right? So I believe we have to teach tolerance. Uh, uh, White children need to be taught tolerance from their parents and it's hard when their parents don't have tolerance. So that's where we have uh, another disconnect. Um, And I do believe that children around um, middle school age should learn the history of oppression in our country, specifically the United States, um, and also around the world, but uh, to help them build their self-esteem. Because 
um, and to become culturally confident by the time they are older in middle school. And I have a saying um, that is important because parents must build their children up so the world can't break them down. I don't mm -hmm. believe that, um, uh, like I said, white fragility should be taught by, by teachers as I don't believe that um, the teacher is the primary teacher. So parents, no matter who you are, you're the primary teacher of your child and your uh, teacher of your child is your assistant. So but there are lessons of oppression, systemic racism that need to be taught. Um, however, you also teach your child about successes who have beat the system throughout history and today with things like I have here that we use to teach and I'll show you guys online. We have the Brain Quest Black History, all the successes, the inventors, all of these great people. Look how thick this is. We have so much history. People say, oh, you guys didn't contribute to anything, but we did we contribute to a lot of things and almost everything. Um, mm -hmm. That's just because you don't know about it. Um, let me show you these. This, this is great right here. This woman came up with. It's called Raising Black Millionaires Flashcards. She's going to be happy that I showed her this. RaisingBlackMillionaires.com. And she, all of these, this is a deck of cards of successful people, black people. So the kids can see people look like them who have made it in spite of this systemic racism. Now, this isn't the majority, of course, but it's some people who have done it, so it can be done. You never leave a child without hope. Okay. And um, yeah. Dr. Hammond, you want to say something? Yeah. I'm going to give you a chance to. You know, I appreciate everybody's comments so much. And to your last point there, JR, I mean, I, I, I am hoping personally that the conversation can move more in that direction. I mean, I think we... To, to to Lauren's point, right? This conversation always gets shut down and we are left to do the heavy lifting and emotional work of this dialogue. But I also feel like Robin D'Angelo's book was important to help white people to start to disentangle all of that stuff about what they're comfortable talking about when it comes to race and what they're not. And I would love that to give us the opportunity in, in communities of color to focus on our resilience and, and empower our children to focus on these narratives of accomplishments, accomplishment and success, because to me, getting in a conversation that involves, you know, should we talk about race? We shouldn't talk about race. Is racism, does it exist? It doesn't exist. Like that dialogue back and forth, I don't think it's good use of energy of people of color who are trying to heal from racial trauma that's pretty much ongoing to use our energy to, to dialogue about whether racism exists and whether we should talk about it. I think we can talk about it in our communities and empower our kids and teachers and people who have access to teaching our kids and working with them, you know, to, to kind of support a narrative that focuses on resilience and empowerment, love, strength, as opposed to these dialogues that I don't think are really that productive. Right. No, I agree. Now, Raf, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Um, apart from teaching white fragility in the classroom, um, I just have a fundamental issue with the, the idea of white fragility and Robin DiAngelo's book. Like, I was going through it, and, and I, I just fundamentally disagreed with, with much of what she had to say. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm not for anti-racism. I am. I just think her form of anti-racism is, is really divisive and built on several fallacies and, and racial stereotypes. So, um, you know, one of the things that she talks about is how individualism, objectivity, rationalism um, are, are, are all pillars of, of whiteness, as, as if, you know, 
being white just entails being objective and rational and individualistic and these kind of things. And that, that's just not, that, that, that's just not true. These things aren't white. There are no universal characteristics attached to one group or another. And I just, I think that's, it's, it's insulting actually to say that, that objectivity is, is a white concept. Like there are lots of black people and, and minority people who excel in um, in STEM, for example, that's another thing um, that they that they're now saying that uh, the scientific method is is built on on European ideas and it's perpetuated by racist people and white people at large. This was the um, this was the African American History of uh, Museum of History. Um, I forget the name of, of the exact uh, place, but but they were uh, spreading these ideas, and I, I just don't think you can attach any characteristic to one group it, it matters at the individual level what kind of behavior what kind of culture they have and then lastly i'll just say uh this goes back to one of my earlier points about about uh, diversity um you know robin talks in her book that white people should lose quote silence defensiveness argumentation withdrawal certitude and other forms of pushback when talking to people of color about racial inequality, but the question is, what black people? Like, are we talking about Candace Owens? Are we talking about you guys? Are we talking about John McWhorter, Thomas Sowell, uh, whoever it is, right? There's a diversity of opinion. What black people, you know, are we talking about? And, and oftentimes we see, like, in the media, certain black voices are, are elevated um, with BLM, with uh, the whole anti-racist movement. Um, you know, if you pay attention to BLM and, and the nationwide protest, then you would think that black people at large want to reduce police. But one Gallup poll found that 81% of black Americans want the same level or higher levels of policing in their neighborhood. Um, and in Minneapolis, after the George Floyd incident, um, which was very tragic and horrible, um, there, there was a poll that went out and it showed that black people were more resistant to the idea of reducing police in their communities than white folks were presumably because there are there's higher levels of gang violence in their community and so they want more police protection to save black lives so so Absolutely. so, so <laughs> yeah so so the idea that there there's a universal black yeah there's a universal <laughs> black thought or universal white ideas it's just not true and it's it's deeply patronizing well whenever you put one characteristic on a group that's stereotyping anyway so but as far as not to go into that tangent as well but you know when we, yes, we want more police. Defunding the police does not mean we don't want police. It means we want to take some money and put it to other services to free them up to take care of the serious um, issues that are in our neighborhoods. And we don't want police there just to police black bodies. We want them there to actually catch the drug dealers, not wave at them, wave at them as you're driving by because you know they're drug dealers. Get them, get the hierarchy the, the, in the drug system, the kingpins and all of those guys. But instead, they just drive by and then they'll just stop someone to stop and frisk or just see if they can harass them. But you see these other people here that are doing horrible things. Take care of them. You know, don't just go, go there to harass people. So that's just what I want to say that about that. But I see you two ladies both shaking your heads. So um, Lauren, go for, you can go ahead and talk, talk about what you want to uh, respond to. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll add on to what you were saying about, okay. you know, uh, defunding the police. I mean, that really 
for a while, you know, all you heard in the news is like, defund the police, take the money away. And like you said, it's really about a re like reallocating the funds where they need to go. Like, let's have more resources of me- for mental health services in our neighborhoods. Let's have more resources uh, for, you know, emerging um, entrepreneurs. Let's um, let's ha- have have drug rehabilitation. You know, so there's definitely there's a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot underneath that and all of that narrative isn't being told when we're talking about defunding the police not all of that is being said and also making our communities be seen as a safe space right now when we're talking about you know rab about the stereotypes one of the stereotypes of black communities is that they're not safe so immediately when police are in our neighborhood they're looking at many of us and i'm i'm saying that in the proverbial we and and inclusive of me even though that might not have been the neighborhood i grew up in but they see our black bodies as a threat and so and that is from stereotypes it is from the images that that have been put out in media of what black men and black women um that they are a threat that they are that they are not safe and so our communities are entered into with care. And so part of that also is how do we make our, how do, how, how can we bring people into police our communities that are part of our communities that are there to actually help us mend the trauma, heal the trauma, you know, there's so much, there's so much deep stuff. And then I wanted to comment on the Martin Luther King quote that you used in the, in your article There is a part of me that I find, you know, often people will take quotes by civil rights leaders or um, by different people. I'll just say by different people, period. And to me, I feel like sometimes they can be a misuse. And I think this Martin Luther King quote for me felt like a misuse in your article because what he was in fact saying is that we should not be judged by the color of our skin, by the texture of our hair, but yes, by the integrity of our souls. And I think what he was also saying is that we can't get to seeing people for the integrity of our souls until we can dismantle the structures that only allow you to see a person by their outside appearance. And that means we actually have to have conversations about racism. So for me in your article, I I felt like it was um I, I felt like it was a blind use of the quote. And 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 as a woman who is a black woman living in America, that resonates so deep for me. Because the first thing someone sees when they look at me is not the integrity of my soul. Well, um, Rap, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to that. Um, Bernice King talks about that a lot on Twitter, that her father's quotes are taken out of context of this whole philosophy. So we have to, um, you got to always be careful when using Dr. King's quotes, because especially around his birthday, people like to quote him and they are not following his whole philosophy. He was pretty much, a, a, he was considered a rebel. White people didn't like him back then. So people forget that. But anyway, yeah, they did not like him. Rap, but you want to respond or? Um, yeah, I, I think so. What I was saying with that quote, the, the idea was that we we should step back from racial stereotypes that people like Robin D'Angelo push. The idea that white people, like I was saying earlier, rationality, objectivity, individualism—these aren't white things. This is these are racial stereotypes, 
and Martin Luther King was pushing against those stereotypes. And so, so, so we should, we should fight against those things. And, and, and yeah, it's, it, it depends on, on the situation that we're talking about when it comes to uh, racism. But today in our discourse, I'm just finding again and again and again, this, this constant racial stereotyping, seeing people based on their group categories, like, so many people that have, you know, come to me uh, and come to other black people, you know, feeling sorry for them or sort of like in this very condescending tone that all minorities are oppressed. Like, you know, I've even been labeled in that category as if, you know, all people of color are marginalized and oppressed. And it's like, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not oppressed. You know, I live a privileged lifestyle and, and yes, I experience racism, but I don't want to be put in that category. And, and sure, some black people um, have experienced um, societal uh, obstacles, but, but not all black people too. We, I, don't, I don't think we can say that all black people are oppressed. Many black people would say John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, Thomas Sowell, Coleman Hughes, they, they would say that they're not you know, oppressed or that they have had these big obstacles in their way that continue to have an impact. So, I, so it goes back to the individualism point that we, we can't just cast these wide dispersions it matters from the uh, it matters from individual to individual there are plenty of white people that live lives that are much more horrible th than my life or, or other black people's lives it, it matters on the individual level and i think that's what martin luther king was saying and yes we should dismantle um any discrimination that exists in our society um which which i totally agree uh, with what you were saying lauren but, but that doesn't mean that we should stereotype people based on these ideas that we have I'm not, stereo I'm not stereotyping people based on the ideas that we have. Stereotypes exist. And because the stereotypes exist, the only way to not allow that to be a part of thought is to, de to, to destructure it, which means like you actually you have to have the conversations that create the stereotypes. And yes, I believe that people that everybody our story, uh, the black story is not a monolithic story. It's not. I, I did not grow up. Um, on food stamps. Have I been on food stamps? Yes. And let me tell you, I, I was on food stamps in my adult life with a child. And I grew up where my parents made uh, a quarter of a million dollars was probably coming into my house every year at some point. I grew up with a brand new car when I turned 16. Shopping in high-end uh, department stores. But it was when I was on my own and when I was married and when things were not, money was not flowing in. But even then, let me tell you, when I had to go on, when we went on food stamps, guess what? I had a hundred resources I could call for money. I could have called my parents. They would have given me money without even a question. But a lot of people don't have those same access to opportunity or access to to help in that kind of way and what that did do for me is open my eyes and and rav i understand you might not have the experience of that oppression and i didn't necessarily have the oppression either i did have i did face racism confederate flags on the back of kids cars that went to my school kids telling me that they wanted to sacrifice my virgin body my black virgin body so, yes, did I experience racism? Absolutely. But I also think we have to ask ourselves the question and say, you know, it is a lot easier to move forward and move out of certain situations and not turn around and look behind. It's easier to, to do nothing than to do something. And even though that might not have been my, my personal experience, 
that brother on the corner, it's still a part of me. So I don't get to walk by and just see the curbside and not and not see, well, where am I being, a, where am I a part of the problem? Where can I help bring change? And that's just my, that is, that is my personal uh, moral that I walk by that no person is a stranger. Right. And I just want to just, I'm going to let you go, Dr. Hamlet, but I know some, some white person somewhere in the United States, more than likely, is going to look at this video and say, oh, she's welfare queen. She was on food stamps. That's what I'm talking about. And we have, I have to just say, when you guys look into the statistics, because white people are the majority, they've been found to be the most on food stamps, mm -hmm. especially in the rural, um, uh, I guess it would be northeast United States mm -hmm. or, you know, like Virginia, Tennessee, those areas. So... I don't want to hear any, I don't want to see any comments about that because I, I know I've seen it and I don't like it because people don't know the truth. They think, oh, you know, what they see on TV or welfare queens, the whole, um, that was whole, all bought up by the Reagan era about black welfare queens and that they're taking money from tax, our taxes. No. I don't want to see that because if you look into the, the statistics, because white people are the majority, there are more of them, and I'm talking numbers, not percentage wise, that are on welfare in the United yeah. States. But go ahead, Dr. Hamlet. You know, but before Lauren made that comment, which was so beautifully stated, I really appreciate what you said. I mean, I, again, similar to Lauren's story, I didn't grow up in poverty. I went to private school. Um, I was, you know, obviously at this point, highly educated. But to Lauren's point, the things that I've experienced as a highly educated Black woman, woman with a PhD, uh, things like going to buy a house and the mortgage broker not being uh, not believing what I told him in terms of my salary and me having to go somewhere else to figure out a mortgage. I mean, every experience I've had as a highly educated black person, it just to Lauren's point makes me think like if I have reached this, this level of sort of education, you know, experience, cultural experiences, and I have these challenges every day I leave my house, then how could I not acknowledge that this is a reality for so many other black people. And so to, to that point, it, it just doesn't make sense, even if every black person or person of color does not experience discrimination, that does not diminish the struggle and the trauma experienced by those who really do. And so again, getting caught up in the conversation of like, well, it's not all black people, it's not all people of color. It takes our attention away from what the actual problem is, is that way too many people do experience that level mm -hmm. of racial trauma. And so why, why waste our energy on a conversation about the fact that maybe it's not all black people or people of color? That's pretty much irrelevant. Right. Right. Well, I think I believe that as you climb the ladder of success, you do run into more racism than you would if you were less educated and you're in the hood because of the fact that, um, you know, you have people that are gatekeepers. They don't want you there. Um, I know all the the people who I know who are successful, they're millionaires now, um, they had experienced the same thing, just like you said, you have um, rap in your experiences. So I think the more educated you are, the more racism you will experience, the more you get out of your area, again, the more you travel, the more you see things. And a lot of times, uh, racism is different in different places. And a lot of times people don't even know they're racist because they're not trying to be racist <laughs> in the sense of being racist. It's just what they knew. And, and now you're, you're breaking that mold. 
and they're so surprised and they want to say, oh, you're not like all the other black people. Which ones? You, the ones you saw on television? Because we've been typecast for so many years that you've only seen probably the worst of what society would have to offer. So, or, or a maid or a slave. So who, who are you talking about? So that, that's important. That's important. Yeah. But, but we're almost out of time. But, oh, yeah. Um, okay. I want you to, yeah, but I want, Rob, I want you to go ahead and uh, oh. if there's anything else you want to say in closing, let's, let's start with you. Go ahead. Oh, okay. In closing. Okay. I had one other bigger point, but that, that's okay. We can, oh, no, no. Please, just go ahead. Get your point out. We'll make time for you. Are uh, you sure? Okay. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just going to speak on, uh, you know, affirmative action that's been going on for, for a number of decades and, and you know, multiple just top companies, corporations, big tech, law firms, Ivy League schools such as Harvard, they, they effectively prioritize black applicants. And there are many, many studies that show that, uh, you know, if, you, if there's a white person and a black person applying to Harvard and they both have equal qualifications, the black applicant is much more likely to be accepted because of affirmative action, because of diversity quotas. This exists in Hollywood. Like I said, big law firms all over corporate America. Affirmative action isn't, isn't news. So, 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 I, so I'm kind of a little skeptical of your idea that that the more educated you get, the more racism you would experience. I'm, I'm sure that there is something to that, that, that you know, certain stereotypes about black people would have an impact and in certain circumstances being more educated would give way to more discrimination. But there is also the other side, which is affirmative action that prioritizes black applicants all over corporate America. Quick question, just answer yes or no. Lauren, Dr. Hamlet, Lauren, have you ever benefited from affirmative action? No. Okay, Dr. Hamlet. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I, this is a bigger discussion. I mean, do no, you mean like someone is. saw me and thought, no, oh, no, I mean, like, I mean, like in corporate America versus, or educationally? No, I've had to work very hard to get to this point and experienced okay. racism at every right. step. I have never benefited from I applied to Harvard, you know, and I, and I applied maybe about six years ago with all my experiences to get my PhD there, I didn't get in. <laughs> they didn't put me as a preference. I have a lot, I have a 23 page CV. <laughs> I have a 23 page CV and I couldn't get in. So I, you know, of course I'm older, maybe they didn't want me, maybe that was the issue because I don't know, because they were looking for younger candidates maybe. But, um, you know, I don't know anyone that have, has benefited from affirmative action. I know it's there. I know people probably do, but I have never met a person that said I've got I got in because I'm black. Well, it's I've hard. Never, it's and I know hard what happens. Know. Yeah, they, they don't. They don't just say that you got in oh, because you're black. You. Oh, I know. I know they don't say that. So but, it's, it's um, hard to know. But again, but but yeah. But no, I had to like literally start a community college and build my way up <laughs> because I, I wasn't getting into any schools and my grades were decent. I went to private school all my life. Uh, so. Yeah, and it's, it's just, I, I don't know. I have people say, oh, well, you probably went to school for free. White people tell me that. I'm like, no, I still have student loans. Okay. I paid my whole way. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I'm still paying those off. I'm, I, like, I'll never pay these things. I'll go to grave with these things, probably because I keep paying and the interest is still there. So, but anyway, that's another topic as well. But Lauren, you want to say something, please go. Yeah, I, I wanted to clarify a couple of things. One, I'll start with saying uh, I got my bachelor's from Howard University, and now everybody knows Howard because, yes, our vice president is from the Howard University. And I went on to get my master's at CalArts, two totally different learning environments. But what Howard allowed me to see is that 
the world outside of Howard was never going to look like that for me. Um, as I, I will say this, I have created community for myself in that way and being surrounded by um, people who look like me. But it was a very special place that taught me and affirmed me in ways that I never received inside of any white institution that I was in. All uh, grade school, all the way through, you know, through high school until I got to college at Howard. That was the first time that I saw reflections of myself every day that really built me to be the woman that I am today. And then I wanted to clarify with the food stamp thing, um, or I shouldn't say thing with with the food stamps. I want to what the reason why I brought that point up is because I it's very important for me to to say that. From, from the way I grew up and the access and, and opportunity and, and level of privilege that I had from my parents' hard work, that was not something that people would say, oh, I bet she's on, right? And what I'm so thankful for that experience of, of, of actually needing it to be able to do for my family because what it taught me is that the system does not really support our people. And that is black people that are on food stamps, white people on food stamps, and every color in between. It actually does not support to help people to be able to even get out of a level of poverty or, or the disproportionate um, access that they have. It doesn't, it doesn't help. I think the max amount is about 500 and something dollars a month. That doesn't matter how many kids you have. And so how does one really survive on that? And so for me, what that showed me is, is it, it opened my eyes to, whoa, like I have had so much privilege. And when I hear you talk, Rav, I just, I, you remind me, you're 19, right? And you're yeah. a very smart young man. And I really, I love listening to you speak because I'm like, oh, he, he really is like, uh, he has a lot of opinion. And I think that's great. But you remind me in so many ways of myself when I was a, a senior in high school and I was applying for colleges and, and my, my mom said, you should apply to Howard. And I was like, I'm not going to apply to Howard. You can't get a good education at a black school. I was like, I have to, I'm applying to uh, Juilliard and Northwestern and my my mind was so whitewashed into thinking that excellency equated to whiteness. Both my parents went to HBCUs, Morehouse and North Carolina A&T, and they were both very successful people, are very successful. But my mind was so tied to the proximity to whiteness. And I just, I'll end with this. That is what the construct of race is meant to do. It is meant to make every individual who is not of white skin, white body, to aim to be more like that, to conform to whiteness. And you see that across the board and the entire world. Look at every country that has been colonized by, by, by a, a European country. Go over to Africa and go into a drugstore. I guarantee you there will be one row of your ibuprofen or your Tylenol, but there'll be 15 rows of bleaching cream. And, and perms, the relaxers. And, and, and relaxer. Yeah. And, and weaves even now. Yeah. 
So it is it's that's what the construct of race is meant to do. And and we don't we won't get to the place of embracing individual qualities of people and seeing people with their soul until we can begin to strip the whiteness away. And that doesn't mean getting rid of whiteness, but it means for me, like. Not every white person is the same. Even when we talk about like white fragility, I know some amazing, I'm a part of a, a, a group called the Jane Club in Los Angeles. We have amazing conversations, cross-racial dialogue around race. And there are many of those women that are so open to conversation and then so open to learning. And then in turn makes me more open to learning and being able to understand their perspective. So no, not all white people are the same by any means. No, so I, I don't even, I don't want to speak of white people as a monolith, but there is a level of when, when we talk about stripping down and, and, and dismantling systemic racism, that means we actually have to take the white thread out of the fabric that has, has created what a standard is or what excellency is or what beauty is or what worth is. Okay. I just want to say, too, that I did invite the author of White Fragility on a show and she couldn't make it work with her calendar. So she can't really speak about her book since she's not here. But I will send this to her. But for last words, uh, let's start with Dr. Hamlet. What do you what would you like to say? You know, I would I, I would second much of what Lauren said. I mean, Rob, it's clear you're very intelligent and I appreciate that you think the, deeply about these issues. I think I think if we could sort of shift the conversation from a, a dynamic of there's no right or wrong, you know, and I sometimes feel like these conversations get into kind of like challenging maybe perspectives that are different or perspectives of black people you know, does affirmative action exist or do all black people feel this way? That just seems to be sort of less, less important and less relevant. And I I would just urge you, you're so smart. And as you continue to have these dialogues to Lauren's point, it's so, it's so enriching to everyone to have an open dialogue where we can hear each other's perspective and it not be in this sort of really constrained construct of who's right and who's wrong, as opposed to let's just, like explore these these conversations together, you know, and things that come up like affirmative action and all black people don't feel that way. I mean, those are sort of inflammatory at this point and they take the conversation to me in an unproductive direction. And so these dialogues are great. And I think it's just better if we think of it as there is no right or wrong. I agree. Rob, do you want to say any last words? No, no, I, I know I agree with a lot of what Dr. Hamlet just said that we shouldn't just divide between right or wrong. You know, there's a, there are a diversity of perspectives, like I've said, you know, multiple times that, that I, I don't think that we should have this one idea of what black people think or what Indian people think or how white people are treated. I think, again, it, it just depends on the, the individual. And I don't want race to ever be a constraint in my life or your lives. And, unfortunately racism exists and so so race can be a constraint in in many cases but these days i think i'll just say that i'm noticing that race is becoming a constraint not by an explicit force of white supremacy to say but from the other side we're seeing this rising tide of of anti-racism that's just casting groups of people by these by these single um identities that oppression is associated with blackness that being that victimhood is associated with blackness and people of color at large 
and privilege is associated with whiteness. I just don't think, I just, I just don't think that framework is helpful or empowers people to take responsibility and enrich their lives. I, I think that we should go back to just seeing each other as individuals and dismantling discrimination as it exists, but not just seeing black people as just this one idea or, or white people or any group. So, so yeah, that's what I'll say. Okay, Lauren? I was going to say, you know, to your point, Rav, the word that I'm hearing, the only way we can get to that is equity. There has to be equity. And I, at JR, you said it earlier today, and you were talking about, you know, it's not just equality, it's equity. And so for there to be, you know, well, everybody get out there and, you know, make better for yourself. Well, where's the, where's the, where's the access where's the access to make better for myself? So, you know, um, that, that's what I would, that's what I would leave, uh, leave this with. And, and I do, I really do appreciate um, the diversity of thought today and just this conversation. Um, And it's, there's so much depth. We could go on for like two more hours in conversation. Yes, we could. Definitely. I just want to, I just want to also say, so for the people that are listening, when we say privilege, we don't mean, um, wealth or that type of an advantage. It means that your skin has not held you back from any advantage. I just want to clear that up um, because people hear that a lot of times, especially white people I'm like, well, I didn't have any privileges growing up. I'm not wealthy. I'm, it has nothing to do with wealth. It has to do with that. You never had to think about your skin holding you back where we think about it because we, I've been in situations where I applied for six figure jobs and I sounded white on the phone. But when I got there, they were like, well, where is she? And I'm the only person in, in the office. But they were so excited to hire me up until I showed up. So I have to worry about my skin and how it will be received uh, once they see me, because they won't necessarily know about it from my name. Um, but they will know once they see me that I'm a person of color. Mm-hmm. And then, so I think about that. You know, when I see all corporate, all corporate C-suites are all white, wow, were they really going to give me this job? I don't know. I can try. Don't mean I won't try. And we keep trying and we keep trying and we keep trying. So, but with that said, I would love to invite you all back to the show anytime you want to talk about any other types of, of issues that affect people of color. If you want to talk about police brutality, if you want to talk about um, affirmative action, we can, we can get into those conversations as well because they're important conversations to have. But I want to thank you all for coming on Back Talk today to talk to us about if teaching white fragility is bad for kids of color. That's really important. It's an important conversation to have. So thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for participating and listening to Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine, the talk show and podcast for parents. Share this broadcast with anyone who needs to hear it and let's get the word out. Be sure to visit our syndicated podcast replays on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Android, and more. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to check out our website at SuccessfulBlackParenting.com, which is full of great content to help you to thrive and not just survive as a parent. I wish you all the best and much success. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine. We'll see you soon. Uh.